Our Father, as we come to your word tonight, as we come to a text that is incredibly deep, incredibly rich, and incredibly relevant to what is going on in the church today, we ask that you would give us grace to understand this and to see how this applies to us. Teach us, O God, to be like Christ in all that we do. Teach us to submit to your word. Teach us to obey, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. So as we come to your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding for that end, for that purpose, that Christ would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Last week, we resumed our study of Ephesians, and we really focused our attention on just verse 1. Uh, and our attention was really mainly focused on that very first, one, uh, first word that you see there in verse 1, and that word, of course, is, therefore. And we saw that this is just such an important word to make note of whenever we're reading the Bible, because it kind of serves the same purpose as a hinge on a door. A hinge you know, on a door is just a small piece, and by itself, it's kind of uh, worthless. It doesn't really do anything. What it does is it serves the purpose of connecting the door to the door frame. Uh, but if you don't have a hinge, if you've got a door and a door frame, but you don't have a hinge, really all you've got is a removable panel on your wall uh, or a hole in your wall. You need a hinge to connect the door to the door frame. And that's why uh, the word therefore is so important, because the word therefore actually serves the, a similar purpose. Linguistically, it's the same purpose. It connects two major components. It connects the antecedent, linguistically, with its consequence. And in Scripture, especially in Paul's writings, which were all very, uh, very logical, very uh, ex- extremely sequential, one thing builds on top of another, uh, it almost always, this word almost always connects truth with the consequences of truth. When we, when we see the purpose that it serves, we see all of the amazing and the beautiful doctrine that we saw in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and it was all like the unwrapping of a gigantic gift, just being unwrapped before our eyes. But that all served the purpose of laying the foundation for the application of those truths. See, all application has to be based on some premise. It has to be based on some truth. And all doctrine leads to application. All theology has consequences, which is why good theology really does matter a lot. Good theology leads to good consequences, such as uh, bearing good fruit, um, repentance, obedience, submission, um, all for the glory of God. But bad theology, conversely, uh, also leads to bad consequences. And so with all that in mind, the first three chapters of Ephesians dealt with doctrine, and the second three chapters deal with deeds or duty. And the two sides are connected by that hinge. The word therefore, which we see at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1 of 
Ephesians. So in light of everything that Paul told us back in the first three chapters of Ephesians, what's the consequence? So what is the question, right? What should, what should flow from all this beautiful truth in chapters 1 to 3? Uh, application should flow from it, right? Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called. Um, what does that even mean? It, it means that we're expected to conform to a certain set of standards. We didn't become Christians by, uh, by qualifying or by having a certain set of standards that we measured up to. No, we were saved on the merit of Christ alone. It had nothing to do with us. It was all the sovereign will and the sovereign grace of God. It was his good pleasure uh, and his sovereign grace that saved us. But once God saved us, once we're converted, once, once a person is regenerated or born again, we're expected to grow just as a child is expected to grow. And when there isn't growth, it means that there's something wrong. So growth is, is very important. Uh, we should constantly be growing in virtue and holiness and devotion. All Christians are in the process of being uh, conformed to the likeness of Christ. So to walk in a manner worthy of our calling means thinking and speaking and acting in a manner that pleases and glorifies God. And if you're wondering what that means, uh, if you're wondering what all that entails or what that looks like, well, that's exactly what Paul is starting to do here. That's what he's going to spend the next three chapters talking about. Now, I think we could probably all agree. Uh, and we, we probably all realize that it's possible to do the right thing, but to have the wrong attitude about it. Uh, because we were all kids once, right? And some of us have raised or are, are raising kids. And if you're like me, your parents probably used to have to tell you fairly often to go and clean your room or to do your chores. And if you're like me... Um, they probably had to remind you more than once to do it. Does that sound familiar? And so finally, they probably told you that there would be some kind of consequence if you didn't do it, and so you ended up doing it, but you did it for the wrong reason. You did it begrudgingly. You, you did it not because you wanted to honor your mother and your father, but because you didn't want to have to go to bed without having dessert after dinner or, or whatever the consequence might have been. And so you did the right thing, but you did it with the wrong attitude, which also means that you probably didn't do it as thoroughly as you could have or as well as you could have if you would have had the right attitude. And in a similar way, there are people who try to walk the Christian walk, but they don't do it with the right attitude. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul talked about those who were out ministering and, uh, and sharing the gospel for the sake of self-promotion, really. They were doing it out of envy and strife, he said. And Paul basically said, that's fine. I'm, I'm actually okay with that. What he said specifically is, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So I think Paul knew that God was the only one who can truly judge a person's heart, truly judge a person's uh, acts and motivations, and that was good enough for him to know that each person will have to stand before the Lord someday and give an account for every action. 
But if we're talking about pleasing God, we don't want to do the right thing for the wrong reason. We don't just want to be people whose behavior has been modified. Doing the right thing, but not with the right motivation, not with the right attitude. Because it's the motivation and it's the attitude that God is looking at, right? God is looking at the heart, right? And so it's the motivation that pleases him. God is judging the heart. And sin is such a vile thing, such a a nasty thing, that we can't even know the truth about our own hearts. I mean, if we even have an ounce of understanding about our own hearts, it's by God's grace. And the thing is, if you're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling, if you're going to, to think and speak and act in a way that pleases and brings glory to God, uh, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul, tells us what kind of attitude we, we should have, what motivation uh, we should have. In fact, as Paul continues, he's going to give us four qualities, uh, four um, virtues, four attitudes that we should have if we're going to do this. If we're going to do what? If we're going to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. So, Let's look at verses 1 to 2 together, and we'll see how they, they fit together. Again, we, we looked at, chap, uh, at verse 1 last week, uh, but let's look at verses 1 and 2 together this week. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, plural, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. What you see here is some difficult stuff. Some of these are a real doozy. Because the human heart, by nature, is so inclined to be prideful. So in, we're so inclined to think so highly of ourselves, to, to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Sadly, some of the people who, are, uh, who at least come across as being the most prideful often are Calvinists. Uh, and it should be the opposite. If you really understand the doctrines of grace, it shouldn't be a thing where you become prideful. It should be a thing where you become very humble. Uh, this past week, I met, a, cof- uh, met a, f- a pastor friend of mine for coffee, and he was telling me about how he and his church had left a very Reformed de- uh, Baptist denomination because there was the feeling that being part of this particular denomination um, among those in the denomination, their, their attitude was, we are the most reformed. Uh, so you, you've really reached the pinnacle if they accept you into their circles. If you had arrived, uh, if, you had, if, they, if they welcomed you, you had arrived. And my friend said that it just drove him away. It drove him and, and his church away, the, the pridefulness uh, that was so prevalent in that particular denomination. And I know, just personally, I know all too well how inclined I am to think too highly of myself. I mean, it wasn't until probably about 11 years ago uh, that it really came to my attention, and I really, really started hating, uh, really despising um, this tendency that I have. And I praise God for that, that in His grace He would show me uh, an area of my life in which I seriously needed to pick up my game in waging war and, and mortifying the old nature within me. And you know, when we're most reminded of how prideful we are, how proud we can be, it's when somebody insults us. Don't you hate that? 
somebody insults you and, and you just want to get the last word. You want to argue. You want to fight. You want to defend yourself, defend your honor, defend your ego. I mean, it's when somebody insults us or cheats us or, or sins against us in some way that this pride just, it's like pouring oil on a fire. I'm reminded of what Charles Spurgeon once said, and you guys have probably heard this quote. He said, quote, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. That's a great quote. While this, this prideful and this cavalier estimation of ourselves is humanity's natural inclination, Paul starts off this list of four virtues that relate to the attitude necessary for walking in a manner worthy of our calling with the virtue that is probably the most unnatural for all of us in this list, and that is humility. Do you want to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Do you want to live a life that pleases and glorifies God, it starts with humility. It kind of reminds me of a hike that Christina and I did last year. We were up in the, uh, the Cascades and decided to go on a trail hike, and the first mile or mile and a half was just incredibly steep. Uh, and as you guys can probably guess, I'm not the fittest of people that you'll ever meet or anything, but even people on the trail who were fit were huffing and puffing all the way up this initial uh, very steep incline. It, it probably took us about 45 minutes before it finally started to level out just a little bit or at least to get down to a grade of 5% or less. But after two hours of hiking back to this little lake called Lake Ann, let me tell you, it was so beautiful back there. If I had known what was in store back there, my attitude going up that steep incline would have been so different. In fact, I would have done it two or three times in order to get back to this little lake that was back there. But that's just to illustrate the importance of humility, but also the difficulty of humility. Being humble is anything but easy. It's anything but automatic. It's so contrary to our nature, but it's so worth it to be aware of our prideful tendencies and to know how seriously we need to mortify it, wage war against it. And so when Paul lists these virtues, when Paul lists anything, he, starts, he usually starts with the most important one first. Um, think of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. What's the first one? Anybody know? The fruit of the Spirit. Love. Love is the first thing that he lists. And I think that it would be hard to argue uh, with the idea that love is not the most important fruit of the Spirit, I think. And so for, for Paul to list humility as the first virtue for pleasing and glorifying God, for, working, or for, for walking in a manner worthy of our calling, it almost seems like he's, he's playing a cruel joke. Uh, but here's the thing, it's kind of like that hike that we took last year. Once you get further along the journey, you start to see that it was so worth it. And you start to actually hate your flesh, the, the fleshly inclination to, to think so pridefully of ourselves. You start to hate how high and mighty your flesh inclines you to perceive yourself or to feel. And you start to see that humility, while it might be the most difficult virtue, it might also be the most beautiful of the virtues, and it's certainly arguably, at least arguably, the most important of these virtues. 
And so the more you grow in humility, the more you actually learn to love it, and the more you hate anything that stands in the way of you getting there. But here's one of the most important lessons that you'll learn about humility on your life journey. You'll learn that it is impossible, it is literally impossible to grow in the likeness of Christ, and we believe that all things are God is, God is causing all things to work together for that purpose, right? That we would grow and be conformed to Christ's likeness. Well, it's impossible to grow in Christ's likeness, to be conformed to his image without learning humility, without growing in humility. When Paul was writing to the Philippians, they had some serious conflict going on in their church. They were a church on, on the verge of division. And this is what he says to them in, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The truth is, Christ modeled humility more greatly than, uh, than we could ever practice it. Because we'll never be as high and exalted as he rightfully is. I mean, if God is causing every circumstance in our lives to grow us in Christ's likeness, we will grow in humility because Christ was the ultimate example of humility. And what we'll see is that humility is kind of like a gateway that leads to these other virtues, such as, look what he says here, verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness. That's the next virtue. The Greek word here is actually derived from, uh, from the word meek or meekness. Uh, some translations do say meekness. To be meek doesn't mean that you're weak. I think that's the impression that we get a lot of the times, especially with the English language, but to the contrary, to be meek means that you're not weak. It actually means that you have power, but you don't use it. And if you do use it, you use it very sparingly. And anytime I come across this word gentleness in Scripture, there, there are two primary passages that immediately come to mind. One is Galatians chapter 5, again, uh, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a virtue that is present in some form, in some capacity, in the life of every Christian. It's, it's within our, our, our reach. It's, it's part of the package deal that we got when the Holy Spirit uh, began dwelling within us. And so with that said, there's really no excuse for us to do things like trampling others, for us to, to use as much power and authority as we possibly can, never mind what needs to be done, but just doing it as, as, as harshly as we possibly can, exercising power over others unnecessarily. I mean, even if you're doing it in the name of discernment, and there are a couple of so-called discernment ministries that are, um, that are really anything but gentle 
They seem to kind of thrive on trampling people. Even if you're right, there's never a reason to be lacking in gentleness. So the first passage that comes to mind is Galatians 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. The second passage that comes to mind is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where he writes the verse that all of the discernment ministries and all of the apologists love to use. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Oh, he keeps going. He says, yet with gentleness and reverence. There's that word, gentleness. In fact, this is the only time that Peter uses that word when he's talking about defending the faith. And we're talking about Peter here. This is the same Peter who, who always says too much, who always has the, the taste of his foot in his mouth, right? I mean, this was a guy who was happy to tell people exactly what was on his mind, exactly what he was thinking, and he wasn't really uh, known, at least in the Gospels, he's not known for, for mincing his words. And if you spend any amount of time uh, with fishermen or, or watching them on TV, you'll see that they are maybe some of the last people on earth who are inclined to be gentle or to be meek. But Peter was a changed man. And I have no doubt that as he wrote this so many years after um, the time that he spent with Christ, I have no doubt that he looked back on his life at the times where he trampled people unnecessarily, failing to use gentleness, and realized how wrong he was for the harshness with which he would sometimes treat other people. So gentleness, humility, and gentleness. A third virtue here, closely, uh, closely related to the idea of gentleness, is patience. Patience. Again, fruit of the Spirit. Talking about the fruit of the Spirit here, and I, I don't know if there's ever been a generation of Christians for whom it, uh, patience was as great a challenge as it is for our generation. I mean, we live in a culture of, of instant gratification, right? We live in a world where filmmakers realize that for them to keep the attention of the audience, they have to move the camera angle, change the camera angle every three to five seconds on average, because we've got such a penchant for impatience for being bored with things. We just aren't a society in which patience is valued. No instant gratification is valued. But patience is what's valued in God's kingdom. See, we're inclined to seek revenge when somebody sins against us or when they insult us, right? We're, we're so inclined to do that. I, I could give you a million examples of times when I just had to bite my tongue and keep my hands in my pockets when somebody insulted me. And the truth is that if you're around people long enough, even Christians, somebody's going to sin against you. And you're going to sin against people. And the temptation to seek revenge, the temptation to seek retribution might be pretty strong. But this is where patience and gentleness and humility come into play. See, part of the Christian journey is going to involve things like contemplation, meditation, 
thinking about the, the great truths of the Christian faith. And the stronger our communion becomes with God, the more we realize the heights of God's holiness and His righteousness and the depths of our own sin and unrighteousness and unworthiness. And when you start thinking about these things, when you set your mind on these things, you start to see, man, God is so patient with us. He's so patient with us. He could have judged us, and it would have been just. He could have condemned us, and it would have been perfectly just. But he hasn't. He could have disciplined us more harshly than whatever discipline you've received from him has been. But he hasn't. The patience that God has shown to you, therefore, should cause you to show patience to others in the same way that God's forgiveness that was extended to you should cause you to extend forgiveness to others. And in the same way that his love for you should cause you uh, to, to love others, even those who have sinned against you harshly. One more virtue that Paul names here, last but not least, is tolerance. Tolerance. He says, showing tolerance for one another in love. Notice uh, showing. The indication there is that it's ongoing. It's not something that you, you do once or twice or seven times. No, you do it 70 times seven, right? And remember, to tolerate, we're talking about the Bible's definition of tolerate, not the culture's definition. To tolerate doesn't mean that you, you stand with somebody who uh, has made some kind of decision one way or another. That's kind of our culture's definition of the word. No, to tolerate biblically means that when somebody is in disagreement with you on some issue, you extend humility and gentleness and patience and love and kindness to them anyway, and you don't allow the disagreement to lead to division. So what's the purpose of these four virtues? Well, it's first related to walking in a manner worthy of our calling. It's related first and foremost to living in a manner that pleases and glorifies God, but specifically in the context of this passage, exercising these virtues is the key to maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So do you see how this all connects together? It pleases God when the very people that Christ died to redeem are united with one another. It glorifies God when we exercise these virtues, specifically in the context of the body of Christ. See, while it's absolutely true that there's a set of standards and expectations that Christians have for their conduct, we also recognize that it's true that none of us will uphold the Lord's precepts perfectly. We're going to wrestle with sin. There's still a remnant of sin that abides within us. The flesh is still so inclined to defy God's rule and reign. So how does that affect our relationships to one another as Christians? It means that we have to come into this context, the context of, of the saints, the fellowship of the brethren, with the understanding that there will be times when people will sin against one another. There will be times when a Christian brother or sister will slander one of us unjustly or treat us unfairly. There will be times when, uh, when somebody sins against us. 
And without these four virtues, even the smallest sin could lead to World War III. As Christ himself exercises gentleness and patience with those who sin against us, we too must extend these virtues to those who sin against us. This doesn't mean that there will never be a time when Christians, legitimate Christians, need to go their separate ways. No, if a denomination starts placing a, a bind on the conscience of Christians that Scripture doesn't support, it's time to leave the denomination. Or if a denomination starts endorsing something that Scripture clearly prohibits, it's time to walk away. Sometimes, sometimes, even godly men like Paul and Barnabas, even though they're legitimate Christians, even though there's a unity between them, they still must decide to go their separate ways and to work separately because they can't agree on the best way to fulfill the work of the ministry. But with that said, unity among the brethren, among true Christians, matters. And that's the subject of this chapter as a whole. If we must divide, we should be very slow to do so. That's patience. This is an exercise in patience. And let that process be thoroughly immersed in things like prayer and submission to the Word of God and the exercise of these four virtues. See, if unity among Christians matters, and it does, if it pleases God and if it brings glory to God, it does, unity does, then we must commit ourselves to preserving that unity. And these four qualities, these four virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance are a necessary means to that end. And so as we commit ourselves to the practice of these four virtues, we should also understand that to do so is to grow in Christ-likeness. It's to imitate Christ. And it's to be conformed to his image. Is unity the most important thing? No. Truth is, we're united by truth. But unity is a result of that truth. And so, as we commit ourselves to being obedient to the truth, to walking in the truth, let's do it with these four virtues front and center on display in order that our unity would be preserved. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have ransomed us from the grave. You have sent, sent your Son, Jesus, to bear the guilt of our iniquities and our sin in order that our sin could be dealt with in a way that allows for us to be brought into fellowship with you by grace, through faith in Christ. So we thank you that you have adopted us as your children. And we pray, Lord, that this would be important to us, that the unity of your children would be important to us. Teach us humility. Teach us gentleness, self-control, patience, meekness, 
tolerance of one another in order that Christ would be glorified in our unity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper